to so much for the Word of God that's filled with the spiritual nutrients that we need, and we're going to receive it by faith and appropriate it. Again, Holy Spirit, we call upon you as the divine teacher to aid us and, and open up our eyes, anoint our eyes, our ears, and heart, open them by the gift of your grace, and cause us to see, hear, and understand what's being said. Father, I thank you that your children's going to hear from you today, and they're going to get exactly what they need and walk away with that. And I thank you if it's by revelation. And only you can do this miracle. I believe it's happening right now in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right, let's go to verse 1, start unpacking this this morning. Oh, <clears throat> that you would bear with me a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. And so we've been picking up in this chapter, the last chapter, moving on to this chapter, Paul is addressing those in the congregation that had been swayed by false teachers, false teaching. And after Paul had left Corinth, there was teachers that came in. And so we're going to find out what they were teaching. They were teaching a, a mixture of uh, legalism, but they were also putting in some Greek philosophy into it. And so it was just a, a weird religion that they were trying to teach. And, and uh, some of the congregation, not all the congregation, most of the congregation was behind Paul and believed in Paul, loved Paul, but there was a segment of the church that had been swayed by these false teachers. So Paul's coming in, and he's going to give a defense of his ministry. He's going to talk about my ministry versus their ministry, and he's going to bring that out. And so Paul's going to use some sarcasm. Raise your hand if you, if, if, uh, you think God can use your sarcasm. <clears throat> Sanctified sarcasm. And so Paul's going to be using, it's going to be dripping with sarcasm through these next couple chapters but you know what Paul's going to get out and says you know what all you guys the only thing you'll listen to is boasting if someone comes boasting about themselves you'll listen to them someone comes with humility they just want to serve you think it's weakness but no okay so if if you're going to listen to people that boast okay stand back let me boast a little bit and he really and what he was saying actually he could back up and so so he says okay if you're only going to listen to boasting it's foolish to do so but I'm going to I'm going to do it that's all you're going to listen to and it's for your sake and so he starts out with her, oh, say, oh. oh. This conveys a strong emotion. And so have you noticed that a lot of our worship songs are filled with, oh, 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 Well, here we go. It's scriptural. Conveys strong emotion and devotion to the Lord. Praise God. All right. Oh, that you would bear with me a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. This word, I would, would, is really, in the Greek, it means it's a wish that's probably not going to happen. That's what the Greek, the, Greek, the Greek form of this is a wish that probably won't take place. I, I would that you bear with me in folly, and you know what, probably you're not. But I'm going to do it anyway. And so he says, with a little folly, boasting in oneself accomplishments and standing, especially comparing yourself with others, is just foolish. It's foolish. And so we are what we are by the grace of God. Raise your hand if you are what you are by the grace of God. I know you're wonderful, but not that wonderful. <laughs> I know you're sweet, but not that sweet. And so any sweetness and goodness about you, it's Jesus coming through you. Amen? Amen? Anything not like Jesus, you take credit for that one. It's all on you on that. And so we should compare ourselves not with other people, but match ourselves up with Jesus. If you think you've arrived in the Christian life, look at Jesus and just say, you know what, how often do people come up, fall down on their knees and say, Jesus, oh, I'm sorry, I'm confused, confused, I thought you were Jesus. 
That would often happen with Smith Wigglesworth. They'd, they'd fall down and say, oh, you, I'm convicted of my need for God. And if that's not happening on a regular basis, we have some progress to make. Now, your spirit, you match your spirit to Jesus's, perfect match. But in your soul and your body, we have some work to do. Tell someone you have some work to do. <clears throat> Comparing yourself to Jesus keeps you in humility. If you compare yourself with others, you're going to be better than others. You're getting pride. You're so much better than others. Or if you look at others that look better than you, then you get into inferiority. That's a hard word. Inferiority. You, you think you're less. <laughs> Make note for second service. Don't try to attempt that word. <laughs> I tried. And indeed, you do bear with me. And so again, this is sarcasm. He's basically saying, well, you're treating me like you're just putting up with me. That's sad. Paul started this church. They owed their, their salvation and the hearing of the gospel to this man, and now they're just kiss, casting him aside like nothing. Verse 2. And Paul says this. Why am I, why am I, why am I even bothering? Why, why am I doing this? For I'm jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin unto Christ. Jealousy. Raise your hand if you think jealousy is, is, is wrong. You're tricking me, Pastor. Don't you hate when someone tricks you into raise your hand? I'm sorry, I tricked you. It depends on what type of jealousy. There's a godly jealousy that Paul just put. There's godly jealousy. Well, what does that mean? God is jealous. So when I was young in the Lord, I remember going to a Sunday school class, and everyone else, all the other boys didn't show up. And I was left with the Sunday school teacher that morning, and so he says, well, instead of doing the lesson, do you have any questions? I had one question. That my brilliant mind, I thought, I'm going to trick this guy. This guy's not going to know what to do with this. He's going to quit and run. <laughs> and I said, well, if jealousy's bad, then, what, then how come it says God's a jealous God? And he, he solved it. <laughs> there's an unholy jealousy, which is self-centered. But there's a godly type of jealousy. You know God is a jealous God? Seven times the Bible calls God jealous. Seven times. Seven is the number for per perfection and completion. God has perfect and complete jealousy over us. But what's that about? Well, God's perfect jealousy comes out of a burning love for us and his desire for us to be blessed and protected. God is jealous over you. Matter of fact, one of God's names is jealous. Did you know that? One of his names is Jealous. Well, pastor, where's that? Exodus 34, look at verse 14. Exodus 34, look at verse 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous. He is a jealous God. It's not just an attribute, it's one of his names. What does that mean? Because he loves you so much 
that he's unwilling for anyone or anything to come in and hurt you, corrupt you, damage you. And so his name is Jealous. And if you allow him, he will protect you from any that would come in and hurt, hurt you. There's a godly jealousy between a husband and a wife. There's a godly jealousy. Now, if any young man wants to come in and try to get too close to this woman, God. And then I'll pray for you after for healing and restoration and resurrection. And Paul said, I am jealous with a godly jealousy. What was this? He's just so close to Jesus, he's picking up on his jealousy. And, and he's experiencing the emotion of God, and he's, he's ministering out from that place where God's ministering through him. <clears throat> the jealousy that Paul is feeling was the Lord's very own feeling. The Lord's bride that was betrothed to Jesus was being allured away to commit spiritual adultery by false teaching, false teachers. God's not jealous of us, but he's jealous for us. It is a protective nature. It says, I betrothed you to one husband. The church has been is a betrothed bride of Jesus. Raise your hand if you're single. Okay, look around. I, I'm Rick. Stop. Everyone still? Hey, I'm still here. Okay. You know what? That's okay because you know what? There's a lot of famous single people in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and, and uh, even in the New Testament, there were some mighty men and women that were single. Uh, John the Baptist was a single dude. Now, there was a reason he was single. <laughs> Wet camel hair, this locusts in your teeth, honey matted in your beard. I'm sure locust breath is not good for your first date. So. But the greatest single of them all was Jesus. But uh, he's, he's engaged. So you think, you know what? It's been, I've been waiting so long to get married. Well, He's, he's been waiting to get married for 2,000 years. Tell someone there's hope for you. <laughs> hope. Paul said, I have betrothed you to one husband. Paul's going to talk about that he's in a role of the friend of the, of the bridegroom. In the Jewish culture, the friend of the bridegroom oversaw the betrothal time between the bride and the bridegroom. During the time of betrothal, he watched over the bride, potential bride, against any that would try to cause her to be unfaithful until the time of the marriage. Then he would be called upon as a witness in behalf of her integrity and purity. This, you know, this is a very trusted position. If you're the groom... And you're, and you're picking someone to kind of watch over her and make sure no one's going to try to allure her away. And, I mean, that's a position pretty close to her, and you know, that's pretty important that you have a good friend that doesn't try to get close and use that situation. 
Look at John 3, 29. talks about the friend of the bridegroom. John 3, 29 says, He who has the bride, that's Jesus, has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of mine is fulfilled. John talked about, I'm a bride, friend of the bridegroom. Jesus is the groom. Well, Paul here is basically saying, I'm in the role of the friend of the bridegroom, that we're in a betrothal period now, uh, during this church age, then when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a marriage. And so during this time, I'm in the role of the friend of the bridegroom. Matter of fact, every minister, every pastor, is functioning in the role of the friend of the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom carried messages between the two. As a pastor, I'm in the role of the, of the friend of the bridegroom, and I'm passing along messages from your groom to you. Very important that you accurately convey his messages. Well, I hear directly from him. Yeah, yeah, you can get hear directly from him. But there's some messages that, that's going to come through the friend of the bridegroom. Paul was acting as the role of the friend of the bridegroom in watching over the bride's purity until she was married to the husband. Again, my role as pastor of this church is to act in that role, friend of the bridegroom, and present you a chaste virgin to Christ by teaching pure doctrine that leads to you to have pure faith in Jesus. Being a pastor is a big responsibility that I'll stand before God one day and give account of you guys. Please give me a good word. Some pastors try to get the bride to fall in love with them. I'm never pointing you to me. I'm pointing you to him. The betrothal, let's talk about betrothal in the ancient world. That's kind of like our engagement, but more serious. More serious. I think most things back in those days was more serious than what we do today. So many things today are so watered down, they're, they're just pale images of... The true thing. The betrothal involved the groom leaving his father's home, traveling to the bride's home to purchase her for a price. The groom gave a token and or a dowry, and its value had to be known by the bride. In all cases, the wife could only be acquired with her consent. The marriage contract then established, and from that moment, the bride was sanctified or set apart exclusively for the bridegroom. It was customary for the groom and bride to drink a cup of wine over which the betrothal benediction was said. This prenuptial process can be seen as symbolic of Christ's work on our behalf. Jesus left the home of his father, heaven, traveled to the home of his prospective bride, a prospective bride earth, to purchase her for a price. That was his own blood. His bride has joyously consented to the match. He has given her a priceless token, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's a token. We have been given the communion cup of wine to drink during this period before he comes. The groom would return to his home during this betrothal period. According to Jewish marriage law, when the time came for the wedding, the groom would return for his bride, 
accompanied by escorts to be taken back to his home for a seven-day marriage feast. The exact time of his arrival was, usually, was not usually known in advance. The groom's arrival was announced with a shout. The church's bridegroom has been separated from his bride now for nearly 2,000 years, and one day he will come for her and snatch her from the earth to meet him in the air to be taken back to his home for a seven-year period called the tribulation. We don't know when exactly this will happen, but we must be ready and remain faithful. Jesus will be accompanied by an angelic escort preceded by a shout when he returns for the church. The Jewish betrothal period was one year. One year. Say one year. Okay, so if you want me to marry you, two, two qualifications. Well, well, first of all, they both be believers, but beyond that, two believers, is that you have to have been in a relationship for a year. Why do you do that? Because you need to know, you need to, you need to know and you need to, to locate and you need to understand who's chained in the basement. Because just one month, two months, he can hide and she can hide in the basement. But after a whole year, it's hard to keep he or her, him out of, out of the basement. Because they will come up. And you need to meet who's chained in the basement. But right here, scripturally, the Jewish betrothal period was one year. One year. All four seasons of life. So, so if I'm going to marry you, you need to be in a relationship for a year, and that you have premarital counseling. Well, I don't need premarital counseling. I've been married five times, bless God. (laughs) Practice makes perfect, Pastor. No, perfect practice makes perfect. Just practice makes permanent. So you may need that. There you go. Uh, the Jewish betrothal one year, and so to one, say one husband. There may be various teachers and leaders that would minister at the church in Corinth, but there was only one husband to them, which was Christ. The false teachers were leading them away from their one husband through lies and deception. Preaching and teaching that does not point people to Jesus is diverting the bride from the bridegroom. I don't care any teaching. It does not point you to Jesus. That Jesus... And his finished work is not at the central point of the teaching. It's diverting their attention from the bridegroom. And that's happening a lot. Good subjects like leadership and marriage and parenting. And well, I don't care what it is. It could be biblical subjects. But if you divorce it from the person of Jesus and his grace and his enablement and his finished work, then you're diverting their eyes off the bridegroom. Because then you're teaching people leadership, but why? Why would you want to be a leader? So that you can point people to Jesus. You can use your leadership to lead people into the kingdom and fulfill the purpose of Jesus. Why should you have a good marriage? So it pictures Jesus. And together, you have, a per, you have a mantle and a calling on your marriage to fulfill the purpose of Jesus Christ. Not just to be happy. Because let me give you at least some. You're not always going to be happy. Don't look. Don't mess it up, Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> no, Pastor. No. Your marriage primarily is not to be happy. 
is to fulfill the mantle of, of establishing the kingdom of God through your express call on your marriage. Now, if you do it right, then, then happiness and joy has those great times. Keep your eyes on the one and only husband, Jesus. Tell someone, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep on keeping your eyes on Jesus. Keep, keep on. That I may present you a chaste virgin unto Christ. You know what? Through, through what Jesus did, you're a chaste virgin. Because, you know, in the natural, we all have a past. But your past is behind you. But so many people are focusing on what's been behind you and letting the devil speak to you, saying your identity is based on your past. That, that can be further from the truth because the, the old past has been buried with Jesus. Tell someone your past was buried with Jesus Christ. The old person you were, were, were died and was buried, is buried with Jesus. And, and in the spirit, you are a spirit being, you're a new creation. And, and in your born-again spirit, you've never sinned in your born-again person. I've sinned too. I've done a good job at it. <laughs> no, you sinned with your body and you sinned with your soul, but, but your spirit's been, been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And in your identity, your new identity, your new creation is a pure, chaste virgin. But Paul's talking about what about the soul? Because we're spirit, soul, and body. And so he's wanting to present spirit, soul, and body to someone that's been cleansed by the water of the word. But you've got to realize that you're a chaste virgin. Think, you know what? Uh, I, I've had a past and even a sexual past, and I feel guilty about that. You need to see that the blood of Jesus has flowed over it and totally removed it. And that you're a chaste virgin under Christ. You know, having your mind renewed and your belief system at the, at the basement level of your belief system, that'll change how you think about yourself and how you allow others to think about you. Ladies, if you're single and that, and that, that, that handsome guy that's smooth as butter with his work, I love you. I love you. No, he just said, I lust you. And he's pushing the boundaries physically. That he does not love you. Because love is patient. God's love is patient. And so, but when you understand that I'm pure, that will, that will say, you know what, I'm, I'm special property. I'm not for common use. You know, there's some things in our house I can't just use. There's certain dishes I just don't get to use. There's certain glass. They're in a china cat. They stay there. They're holy. <laughs> there, there's some dish towels that are not used for dishes. They're sanctified. Well, when we understand that, that we are pure, we're not for common use. Keep your hands off. Let me say this, young ladies. Until he puts a ring on your finger, tell him to keep your lips off yours. Because every time you go in for a kiss, something happens. 
Your eyes close. Let there be a commitment. Verse 3. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted. Not your spirit. Did it say spirit? What did it say? It said minds. May be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. As a believer, the only part of you that, that's open for corruption is your mind and can lead to your body, but not your spirit. From the what? The complexity that's in Christ. I'm sorry, that's the clueless translation. Simplicity that's in Christ. Tell someone, keep it simple. Tell someone else, you really need to keep it simple. But I fear. Paul had a fear. What was the fear? That the serpent, who's the serpent? Satan. That old serpent from the garden. The serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. So your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity in Christ. So that's the name given to Satan. He's called that old serpent in Revelation 12, 9 and Revelation 20, verse 2, if you're taking notes. Satan most often will deceive by using people that are yielded to him. He'll use people to deceive you, such as the false teachers that infiltrated the church at Corinth. Look at this word deceived. It means to deceive thoroughly. Eve, Eve was deceived thoroughly by that snake. Thoroughly. When you're carnal, the deception of the flesh seems so right. Only if you're spiritual can you see the obvious error of fleshly temptations. The slogan of the Corinthians was, how can it be wrong when it feels so right? And we as Christians can get into the flesh and say, how could it be wrong when it feels so right? How could it be wrong for me as a believer to marry that unbeliever? When it feels so right. Well, you're in your emotions. Carnality is you're led by emotion. How do you know what is spiritual versus emotional? The word. The word of God's quick, sharper than a two-edged sword, divides between soul and spirit. Spirit and soul. What's spiritual? What's soulish? What does the word say about marrying an unbeliever? <laughs> Don't be yoked together. with That's the word. So we know right now the word divides between what's spiritual and what's soulish. You're soulish right now. You're, emo- you're being led by your flesh and emotion. But it feels so right. Go back to the word. Eve means the giver of life. Eve was deceived by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. False teachers appealed to the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of the Corinthians. How was, well, how was Eve seduced? Look at Because we have temptation that we think of the temptations today that we face. That's not the temptations Eve faced. Because none of the things that tempt us was back in the garden. Eve was not offered a sip, a peak, or a puff. <laughs> Let me say that again. She wasn't offered a sip, a peak, 
or a puff. But she, but she was tempted by the potential of being more spiritual. So two false teachers came to the Corinthian congregation saying Paul's teaching was just too simple. That there was something deeper they needed to explore and experience. And they were the teachers of it. They had the un- only they had the understanding of the deeper things of God. And we have the people today, they're called Facebook prophets. They have these revelations that take you deeper. You need to find, who are these guys? Who are they? What's their background? What's their history? What's, what's their track record? They're, no, they're just guys sitting in their basement in their underwear. <laughs> they haven't ever done anything, been in, under, submitted to anybody. I'm sorry to put that image in their mind. <laughs> who were these false teachers? They were Jewish Gnostics. Jewish Gnostics. Jewish, Jewish not, what, what, the Jewish part was legalism. You had to be circumcised, you had to keep the feast, you had to Sabbath, you had to keep all the rituals of the Old Testament. But also, there is a spiritual dynamic that you can experience that you're not experiencing now. And Gnosticism taught that there was a span of angels from the one who created the earth to the true God. That there was a true God, and then out of him came a lesser God, and a lesser God, and a lesser God, and one came up. And to, to the, to then you actually had one so far from the pure God, he was the God of the Old Testament that was angry and had people kill people. And, other, and it, they, that was an evil God that created. That's what they did. And there was a span of angels called the Pleroma, the fullness of God. And that to get back to the true God, you had to have experiences with these angels through secret rites and secret knowledge and, and you, would, you would contact these angels and they would give you specific secret knowledge that unlocked the next level. Dungeons and Dragons. That's what it was, Dungeons and Dragons. And so and, and it just got complex and more complex. And they were getting them off. And they were using craftiness. The word craftiness means to be willing to do anything to achieve your goals. They'll stop at nothing to get what they want. So your minds may be corrupted. Say minds. Minds. From simplicity. This is the target of the enemy. What's the battlefield of the enemy? The six inches between your ears. Some battlefields are more empty than others. Satan knows he has to win over the mind of a person before he can have their will. Once he has someone's will, he can do anything he wants to do. He wants to allure you away by presenting tempting options other than Christ that fulfill and complete you. The danger of false teachers posed is that they shift the focus off Jesus Christ and his simplicity of his finished work onto rituals, ceremonies, good works, Emotional experiences, psychology, entertainment, worldly affairs, and riches. And anything else that will distract the people from God. And it says, corrupt your minds from the simplicity. 
False teachers and legalists will complicate the spiritual life with a myriad of rules, regulations, hurdles to obtain favor and right standing with God and the blessings of God. Religious flesh don't like, does not like grace. Your flesh. If you've come up in religion, raise your hand if you, will, if you grew up in religion. Okay, so that's the version of flesh that you came up with. Your religious flesh does not like grace. Because your flesh wants to have some credit in everything that happens. It's fine, Jesus can do a big part of it as long as I have a part to play. Religious flesh loves steps. You want steps? I want steps, Pastor. Look at Jesus. Keep looking at Jesus. Keep on looking at Jesus. Do you need 12? No. Religious flesh loves steps. But the problem with religion is you never get there. You're always on the path. The carrot at the end of the stick, you never actually quite get there. It promises you're getting, like you're making progress, but you're really not. The more complicated the path, the more religious flesh likes it. Because I'm of the super group that can do that. The more religious flesh likes it, and the further you get away from the way, the truth, and the life. The more complicated your Christian walk is, the further you're away from the way, the truth, and the life. Simple faith in the simple gospel will save you, heal you, deliver you, and bless you. Read after that. Say, simple faith in the simple gospel will save me, heal me, deliver me, and bless me. And it will take me safely home. Stay with the one that brung you. Colossians 2.6 says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive Jesus as Lord? Simple faith in His finished work. How are you to walk as a Christian? Same principle. But the problem is, is you get saved by grace, and then you go to church. And taught all the different things you have to do in complexity to keep God happy and keep Him in right favor and order Him to bless you. And how easy it is to get out of fellowship and the light to go out. And then you have to figure out everything you did and confess everything you ever did to get the lights back on. That's called bondage. And, and if you live that way, you, then you have to be perfect. You have to, you have to, you have to confess everything you've ever did. I don't even remember some of the things. So we said, well, we just say, well, forgive me if I ever did something wrong. You're going to lower God's holiness by saying, well, what, whatever I did, please forgive me. It doesn't work that way. Uh-oh, I've gotten into some. <clears throat> the more complicated a teacher's teaching is, the more the person is off base. As a pastor, my job is to take complicated verses on the surface and make them simple. That's my job. But religion takes simple verses and complicates them. 
By his stripes you were healed. Now, you, but yeah, but you gotta, there's, there's, there's ancestral curses. You've got to break those. And there's certain sins that you've committed that's caused the diseases. So you have to go back and find out what spiritual sin created the spiritual sin or caused the sickness. Let me say, let me say something. Perfect theology is Jesus. Amen. If you want to know who God is and you want to have perfect theology, look at Jesus. Jesus is perfect theology. When people came, let's bring a healing. When, when Jesus, when someone came to Jesus for healing, did you see Jesus pull out a clipboard? Let's do an intake on you. I need to hear all of the spiritual sins of your forefathers. Were they into a, a cult? Were they? Oh, let's really get with that one. That's a, that's a major deal. Okay, what sin did you create, did you commit that led to that? Let's, let's. Take an intake on that. No, you don't see any of that. What do you see Jesus doing? Be healed. Just be healed. Then why do we complicate it? Corrupted from the enemy, from the simplicity that's in Jesus. Yeah, but. See, the devil's always about, yeah, but. What about? God doesn't operate that way. God doesn't throw questions that get you into questioning and confusion. That's the enemy. Tell someone, keep your yay butt out of it. The more hurdles erected to gain God's favor or blessings, the further it's off base. Jesus is perfect theology. Look at Jesus. And it'll clear it all up. God's a good God. The devil's a bad devil. And they never exchange places. That's good theology. Did Jesus ever put sickness on somebody? No. Did he ever say, you know, you need to wait and learn a lesson? No. I'm talking about all the hurdles, all the complexities that we get put into our teaching, our religious teaching. You don't see it in Jesus. Perfect theology is Jesus. If your life's not centered around faith in Jesus, the worship of Jesus, and the sharing of Jesus, then you're off in the weeds. Verse 4. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you've received a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you put up with it. He who preaches another Jesus. Do you know that there's one Jesus? He's the Jesus of the Bible. The problem is, is there's a lot of people, their Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. I'm talking about Christians. That the Jesus of the Bible is not their, their version of Jesus. And how do I know? Well, not my Jesus. You know, I, I, my Jesus is the one that always is kind, and he's, he always has the lamb around his, his neck, and he's looking emaciated and humble with a halo. And, and that's, that's my Jesus. But what about the Jesus that's going to come back on a white horse? treading out the winepress of the fury and wrath of God. Amen. Not my Jesus. It's not my, that's not my Jesus. Well, is your Jesus the Jesus of the Bible? Yes. Let, let the word frame who Jesus is. 
There's, there's all kinds of aspects about Jesus. The false teachers portrayed Jesus inaccurately. Their Jesus was not the real Jesus. There can never be another Jesus. He's unique in that he was the only mediator between God and man, both in one person. If you're off on the person of Jesus, you're off on everything else. Every religion and cult get it wrong about Jesus. Every one of them. That he was fully God and fully man in one person. 100% God, 100% man in one person. And he lived a sinless life, died a death for you to atone from your sins. He died and, and was raised physically from the dead. Those basics, every religion on earth and every cult on earth will get Jesus wrong at some point. Well, he was fully God, but he wasn't fully man. He was, he was an image. You know, early church that said, well, he just appeared to be a man, but he really wasn't a man. There's other ones, other religions today say that he was a good man. He, he was a literal man, but he was not the son of God. He was not divine. He was just a good prophet. These false teachers probably taught a legalistic Gnosticism prevalent in the day. They taught that Jesus was merely an angel, one of those angels that you have to contact, but he wasn't the full source, the true representative. And the Colossians says that in Jesus Christ, he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And that word fullness is pleroma. Jesus is the pleroma. He is the bridge between man and God. He is God and fully man. Or if you received a different, a different spirit, which you do not receive. Let me say, when you don't receive the real Jesus, you'll get a wrong spirit. The Spirit of God is pointing to Jesus always. You get, you get Jesus wrong, you're going to get a wrong spirit. Or a different gospel, which you've not accepted. Look at Galatians 1. We're almost done. Galatians 1, look at verse 8. Paul said, if someone preaches a different gospel, let them be accursed. Galatians 1, look at verse 8. But even if we, if I change my mind and, and today I realize Buddha's God. If I ever come in and have a, I have a fresh revelation for River Rock Church, Hare Krishna is the way. And I want you to cut me off. A curse means cut them off. Cut them off. Cut them off. So many times we're attached to people way too much. If Andrew himself came on TV and said, I have a fresh revelation that Muhammad is the way to God, cut him off. And Andrew would say that to you. Cut him off. Could you do that? Could you cut off your favorite human teacher if they, if they were against the cardinal truths of your faith? You should. Fortunately, some Christians won't do it. They'll just follow along blindly like sheep. If I come in drinking Kool-Aid, Cut me off. Cut me off. Galatians 1, 8, 9. But if we or an angel from heaven, oh, it, but it was an angel. They were glowing. I had goose pimples. Preach any other gospel to you than that which you preach. Let them be accursed. Cut them off. As we have said before, so I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you've received, let him be accursed. Cut them off. 
They're on Facebook preaching some other gospel. Cut them off. But you put up with it because you don't know the real Jesus. Verse 5. For I consider that I am not all at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. They came in and said, we're super apostles. We're super dupers. Look at our pedigree. Look at all these letters of recommendation from the home church. Look, we've been to rhetoric school and we've been trained on public speaking. Look how, good, how smooth we are. Paul refers to this in the first letter to the Corinthians. But in what way did they classify Paul as inferior to them? There were two, two claims they made. Their superiority as trained, eloquent speakers and their superiority of visions and revelations. That we're daily in contact with angels. I've been to heaven multiple, many, many, many times, and I'm going to tell you everything about those encounters. Danger, danger, danger. But they said, I was in heaven, and I had this vision. I'm not saying they didn't see a vision, but you know, you, there's different sources that you can get revelation from. You know, Peter experienced that. I love Peter. He's, I have hope. His motto was, in doubt, speak. <laughs> He's on Mount Transfiguration, and God shows up, and it says, and one, one, one gospel says, and not knowing what to say, said. <laughs> it's good for us to be here. But one time he came up with a good, he got a heavenly revelation. You, the, the, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, mm. Boy, you got hold of some good revelation. And a second later, when Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross, says, no, no, Lord, let it not be. And he turned around and said, Satan, get behind me. One moment, Peter, you got it right. Peter, you got it real wrong. <laughs> There's two different sources you get revelation from. How do you know which is real? Well, it feels, this feels real. The word. Satan will always corrupt the word. If you don't know the word, you're, yeah, who knows? Then, it, then it's your feelings that is the source of reality. <clears throat> Paul says that I'm not behind any of the eminent apostles of the day. Eminent means above great. They were calling in, they were called super dupers, super apostles. Paul says, I'm not less than any of the super apostles. These false teachers made themselves out to be super apostles, but they were apostles from Satan. He's going to bring it out. These guys are from Satan. And you're too dumb to understand it. Spiritually dumb. Verse 6. Well, before I get to verse 6, he says, I'm not, believe, I'm not below the most eminent apostles. He's talking about Peter, James, and John even. Do you know, this is Rickyology. I'm going to put it out when I say, this is my belief. I'm going to put it out as Rickyology. I really believe that the replacement for Judas was supposed to be Paul. Because Paul says that Peter saw the risen Jesus. Uh, Peter, James, John, uh, all of the apostles saw him. And me, 
born out of due time, saw him. And in that chapter, he talks about him not being any inferior to the original apostles. But you know what Peter did? Peter's up in the upper room, and they're waiting on the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, go up to the upper room and hold a lottery. No, no. He said, go up and wait for the Holy Spirit. That's all he told him to do. But Peter, he just couldn't wait. He was a doer. We got to do something here. Hey, we only have 11. Let's get another dude. Let's have a lottery. That's why the Holy Spirit says, don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. Get it through Revelation. And Matthias got put in, and no one's ever heard of Matthias after that point. Verse 6, even though I'm, in tra- I'm untrained in speech, yet I'm not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. The word untrained, we get the Greek word, we get the Greek word where we get the English word idiot. Idiotes. Even though I'm an idiot when it comes to speaking, public speaking, I'm not in revelation knowledge. Paul had a revelation Vast reservoir of knowledge of the Old Testament. He had New Testament revelation given by Jesus. Paul had been trained under Gamaliel. He knew the word. I like the living Bible in this verse. If I'm a poor speaker, at least I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) You may not be the best speaker, but know what you're talking about. And trust in the anointing to teach. And you can get better. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. He says, you know what? They're just talking big talk. They're just talking, but they're not living it. He says, I've been th- we've been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Not only what we teach, but how we live. We bear the fruit of Christ in our life. You know, more as caught than taught the best sermons are lived out you know as a pastor the best sermons I've ever preached was in a hospital room or meeting with a family that just lost their loved one I remember when Tony Cook is it a little hot in here or is it just my the anointing (laughs) if you're fine that's fine Tony Cook was leaving Rhema Bible Church as associate pastor after 20 years of being an instructor at Rhema. He was leaving, and he, and he, he taught, and, he was, and they all lined up to, to say goodbye to him, and he's, oh, they're going to talk about my revelation and sermon and what it And every single one of them, because he was an associate pastor, he says, Pastor, when you were with me in that hospital room, when you counseled my marriage and brought me back, I'll never be able to thank you. And you encouraged me when I was in my lowest spot. One after another after another. Not a single person mentioned his teaching. If you want to go in the ministry, the greatest messages is the ones you live. Bow your heads. Father, I thank you so much for the word. And you're just calling us to the simplicity that's in Christ Jesus. Most of our lives are much too complex. 
and we do it ourselves. We have so much garbage coming in through our TV and our, on this phone that we have constantly in front of our eyes. And the things that were on the internet constantly, we have so much complexity in our life. We wonder, why is my life so, so unfulfilling? Complexity. And we've done it to ourselves. Cut out all that stuff. You know, I haven't listened to, I'm sorry, I'm on the internet. Look back up here. You know, and I'm just, I'm just saying what the Lord told me to do. I'm not telling you what you to do. You say, oh, that's horrible, Pastor. I haven't watched the news in about two and a half years. Oh, you ignorant pastor. You could be praying this entire time over all that stuff. Well, let me tell you something. If there's something significant, people tell me. Because people are plugged into those things, and I hear the important stuff that I go. But you know all this here, well, I'm, I only watch it to pray. Mm-hmm. Right. It would do you so much good to just cut out all this distraction. Why, why am I not receiving? Because you've, com- you've made it complex. You have so much, all this stuff hitting you and bombarding your heart and weighing your heart down. And you're the one that caused, let it happen. It said Lot was vexed day to day by what was going on in Sodom. But whose decision was it to be in Sodom? Lot. He chose to be in Sodom. And day to day he vexed his own soul. How do we vex our own souls by what we're clicking? You own this. You can turn it off. You can control how much you're on this. And so often unbelief is being ministered to us so much through what stuff we're letting in. And so you need to just Simplify. Simplify. Pastor telling us to stop watching TV. I'm not saying that. But ask the Lord, is there something that is to an excess in my life that's causing complexity? Keeping my eyes distracted off the simple gospel, the simple Jesus, and worship of him and focusing on him. All right, bow your heads now. You say, Pastor... My life's too complex. I'm getting back to the simple devotion in Jesus. It's all about Him. And I'm going to investigate my heart. Is there something, Lord, that I'm allowing the enemy to corrupt my mind and making it more complicated than it is? I just want you to to meditate. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I just want you to meditate for a second about that. Holy Spirit, reveal to me where I've made it more complex than it really is. My Christian walk. Praise the Lord. Clearly the Lord wants to tell us all something very, very clear here. From the word we heard uh, earlier that when when our eyes is on Jesus, we we can overcome everything, everything else. There are things that are trying to distract us And this is the word that's coming for people who are here today. So please take it. There are things trying to distract you and keep you away from the Lord. But Jesus says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And with you and him together, you can overcome everything that's trying to distract you. And 
there are finances there are needs there are assignments that are greater you think it's like a mountain standing in front of you but jesus says he is in you the name above all names is in you and with him you can do all things finances will come your house or room or whatever you're looking for will come there are people here today who need resources they will all come through jesus the only thing you have to do is stand with him partner with him and knowing that you can do all things through him praise god as pastor rico was, was ministering this morning and talk he, he's talking about we need to bury our past buried it and the lord just uh, laid it in my heart that some of you are struggling with your past and some of you i believe some of you you're here for school and and you just you're still struggling with dealing with something maybe pornography or whatever but the lord said my is my grace is not enough and uh, Jeremy, they were singing a song, you know, shame. And some of you are dealing with shame, and the Lord is like, how can you and I, you and I walk? When you, the Lord wants you to walk forward with him, but you're walking backward. And you can't walk backward and, 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 and walk good. You're going to be stumbling. And the Lord is like, today is your day. Freedom. And I just want to pray with those of you who are struggling. And um, he gave me a scripture, and it's in um, the New Living Translation in, in um, Corinthians. No, that's, no, sorry. It's in Philippians 3, 13. It said, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what is lies ahead. Brothers and sisters, your future is bright. So you need to forget. I don't care what the devil is screaming at you every day. You're just like, Lord. It's like a criminal I said one time. It's like, if you're smoking weed, every time you take a sip, say, Lord, your grace. Your grace is enough. And pretty soon it's gone, the desire. So I just want you to just, don't be ashamed. Just lift up your hand. I just didn't want me to pray for you today. Whoever feels shame. I see that, brother. I see that. I see that. Lord, I just thank you that you love us so much. And I just come against this spirit of shame in the name of Jesus. I just, I just speak peace over them right now in the name of Jesus. Amen.